We're going to get started here uh, for our Sunday school hour, so I'll invite folks in that are in the foyer. If you could please take your seat. So my name is Rob Snyder. I'm one of the elders here at Calvary Grace Church. So we're starting a new uh, adult Sunday school season here. This is the first Sunday. You've got a number of options. So upstairs here, uh, it's going to be myself, actually Jared Harfield here, and then every once in a while, Pastor Josh Carey uh, teaching a biblical theology of work. So that's the course. If you're sitting here in the pew right now, that's what we're going to be diving into this morning, a biblical theology of work. Uh, the other option is guidance. That's downstairs in the fellowship hall. And that's going to be uh, beginning shortly as well. Now, as well, in the Luther Hall over here, this room which is on the other side, there are a gospel partnership classes happening as well. So those are the three options for this as we begin this Sunday school season. So if you're here for a biblical theology of work, that, that's, that's what I'm going to be teaching. If you're looking for something else, Again, guidance downstairs, fellowship hall, gospel partnership classes in the Luther Hall. All right, well, I'm going to pray and we can get started here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to uh, take time now to thank you uh, for the blessing and the privilege it is uh, to be able to gather together on, on this Lord's Day. Father, what a blessing to be able to worship you together, our living triune God. Father, even as we just consider this topic of work, even how uh, we ought to work, what work is about, um, all these different things concerning uh, work, Father, just pray that this time could be helpful now, that it could bring clarity to some hearts and minds here now. And all these things, Father, we want to learn how to honor and glorify you in our work. So to come help us now, uh, we pray by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've got the handout, I believe. If you flip to the back, I think you have the course outline. Is that correct? Weeks 1 to 13? You guys have that? Okay. So you can see week 1. We're going to be diving in with a biblical theology of work. A biblical theology of work. So what's a biblical theology of work? Well, when, we look at, when we're talking about biblical theology, we're talking about the grand sort of meta-narrative or big picture, big story that the scriptures are saying f- sort of from start to finish. So biblical theology, you're sort of taking a step back, sort of maybe out of diagnosing or looking specifically in detail at, it, at, at the tree, you're taking a step back to look at the whole forest as it were. So you can see this course starts uh, with this biblical theology of work. So it'd be helpful just to give the big framework. The big framework. So I want to start with a question though. Why do you work? Why do you work? What's the significance of your work? Well, the significance of your work is, is going to depend very much on the, the story that you um, find yourself in, or maybe even a perceived story that you, you seem to think that you're in, right? 
The question, though, is the story that you're, you're trying to tell yourself as you work, does that correspond to reality? Does that correspond to reality? So here's a few options. Maybe you fit into one of these. If the story of work is the story of achievement, then your work is about making a name for yourself. So we could say moving from obscurity to glory. That's self-glory, self-glorification. Maybe your story is the story of accumulation. Then work is a means of comfort. And if it's primarily a means of comfort, then the goal then, the story that you're telling yourself, is you're, mo- you're trying to move yourself from maybe poverty to wealth. Another story for work that you might be telling yourself, you might be trying to find yourself in, is are you seeking to make the world a better place? Is that the end goal? Well, that's the case, then work is the means of salvation, and you are the savior. You're trying to, the the goal then is try to move uh, the workplace, even maybe this city, this region, sort of spanning out from dystopia to utopia. Those are just some options that I think sort of common paradigms um, that we can try to tell ourselves this is what work is all about. So what story is your work telling then? And who is at the center? Who's at the center of your work? And the question, of course, is is the story uh, your work is telling a story that's true? Is it a true story? Again, does it correspond to reality? Well, this is one of the main questions we're going to be addressing over the next 13 weeks as we dive into this course of Christians in the workplace. And it's important to just point out right off the start, the proper starting point when we consider work is actually not your story or my story, but it's God's story. It's God's story. This is where the Bible starts. And the Bible starts with God telling the, sto- the true story of work. The true story of work. Well, if you, didn't, if you, if you haven't given uh, work much thought, you may think that the story of work begins after the fall. And it ends when Jesus comes back. But that storyline we're going to see here shortly that, that, that if, if, if that's the story you're telling yourself, it's casting work in a negative light. So what that means then is work is merely a post-fall um, sort of thing, right? That wasn't part of God's creation before the fall. Well, most of you will know here from the book of Genesis that work was very much part of God's creation before the fall. Work is not a post-fall thing. And more than that, like I said earlier, God is at the center of work. God is at the center of work. So God's work began when he created the new heavens and the new earth. And like all good stories, this story has at it and in it um, both a tragic crisis and a glorious rescue. So we're going to be looking at, as we move through this biblical theology of work this morning, there's sort of four acts 
you know, if, if we're looking at it as a play, as it were, there's sort of four acts that we're going to be looking at. You can see them on your hand out there. So we've got creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Many of you are maybe familiar with that paradigm. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So God's story of work, then, is the key to understanding our own work. And more importantly, the story of our lives. So what story are you telling yourself? What story do you find your own work to be in? So let's look at Act 1 now. Act 1, creation. So again, it's critical to understand that the story of work does not begin with us. It doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. So God, then, is a worker. God is a worker. So the Bible begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we're told seven times that God created, 12 times that he made something. And all of this creating and making is summarized as his work. So by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. That's the pattern that you see that is uh, built into the, the fabric of his creation. So it's this fundamental truth then that the story of work begins with God that helps us to understand the next part of this opening act of creation. This is because the crowning moment of God's creative work was not the creation of far-flung galaxies or the intricacies of uh, creating DNA. The crowning act of his work was the creation of human beings. It was the creation of human beings. So like the rest of creation, we are the work product of God, but uniquely, as we know, human beings and only human beings have been created in God's image. The animal world has not. God's creation has not been created in his image. Only human beings. So part of what this means is that we are created to be a reflection of God to the world. A representation of God in the world. So we see this in Genesis 1.28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, as many of you know, even the animal uh, kingdom, the animal world, was commanded to be fruitful and multiply, right? So that's not unique to humans. We're all meant to reproduce. But for human beings, God goes on. We're not just to fill the earth. We're, quote, to subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the earth. For we're given work to do, and it's work that reflects the very nature of God, that is having dominion over his creation, being vice regents over his creation, as it were. So God then is clearly king as creator. He is king over his creation, but he's setting up humanity created in, in his image to be vice regents over his creation and to represent him to the world so that when human beings uh, reproduce and flourish, 
they're representing, it's a message to the world, this is something of what God is like. And of course, it's at this point that God declared his work very good and rested at the, at the end of his creation act. So in chapter 2, the nature of the work of God's, or Genesis chapter 2, the nature of the work God's given us comes into sharper focus. So if act one, scene one, closes with God resting, act one, scene two, opens with God working again. Not the work of creation, but the work of ruling and ordering what he's made. So it's in chapter two that we see that you're getting more detail to the creation account. God plants a garden. He plants a garden, literally a paradise, and he puts man in it. So we might think then of a well-ordered country estate. We can think of when we think of the Garden of Eden, a paradise. It's a, it's a well-ordered country estate. And he places Adam there. So this raises a question. This is something that maybe some folks here are not familiar with, haven't thought about. How do you create a paradise in an already perfect world? Because all of God's creation at this point was good. God declared it to be so. And yet, he calls the garden a paradise. So how does that work? How does that work? Um, well, the answer is God created a place perfectly adapted for human flourishing. For human flourishing specifically. So the garden was a de- dwelling place for humanity. And like I said, he put Adam there. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's Genesis 2.15. So Adam was to work and take care of the garden. Eve was created as his helper, his helpmeet. So literally, Adam and Eve were to tend the garden, make it grow and flourish, and they were to guard it, to protect it from anything that would spoil or harm it. So they, the, the mandate that they were given then was to to tend it, and to guard it. And this is important because the work God gave Adam and Eve is the paradigm for all human work. To understand that, think with me for a moment about the Garden of Eden then, again. It's the place God designed for human flourishing. There's nothing like it on earth anymore. So there's three, th- three things that are pretty unique then about the Garden if we try to consider this. It's home where they lived out their marriage and were to raise their family. It's temple where they met with God. God dwelt with man. And it's the workplace where they're to engage in productive, fruitful labor, satisfying labor that God had given them. So just consider this then. In this fallen world, you and I have never experienced um, this. That is a world in which the divisions and conflicts of interest between church and workplace and family didn't exist. The garden wasn't like that. It's something pretty fascinating to consider. So in that amazing world, their work was to take that garden, home, temple, workplace and make it flourish, make it grow, protect it and nurture it until the entire world and not just the little corner was a paradise. So again, going back to the further question, okay, God created a perfect heavens and perfect earth. 
free of sin, free of corruption, and then within that perfect world, he created a paradise. How does that work? Well, part of Adam and Eve's job was to expand the paradise for human flourishing, even within the perfect creation. And again, this is the unique job description for humanity only because only they, only us, are created in the image of God. So just as God created, then we could say they were to create. Human beings have been been given a creative power, as it were. I mean, you can still see it all around, even as we now live in a fallen world, which we're going to get to shortly. So just as God ordered and managed, they were to order and manage. Just as God created a fruitful and flourishing world, they were to protect and advance that flourishing place. It's to be a, a, a place of flourishing and fruitfulness. So their job as God's representative then was to take what God had begun and carry it on. And again, the ultimate purpose was to show off God's glory. This is what God is like. So the point then wasn't who they were revealed to be through their work. It was rather who God was revealed to be through their work. Because being made in his image, their work testifies to him. Again, I would suggest that this is, with our fallen minds, this is hard to wrap our minds around because we're, we're, we're naturally so curved in on ourselves, right? So here's the first lesson then from Act 1. You can see it there in your handout. The original purpose of human work was the advancement of human flourishing to the glory of God. To the glory of God. So our work in whatever sphere we operate, home, church, workplace, is to show off the goodness and magnificence of God's character as his image bearers. We do that as we cultivate the garden we've been entrusted with. Right? The Lord has given each of us different spheres of influence. We could call those our gardens, as it were. And we're to do that for the, for the flourishing of humans around us, to the praise of God's glory. So in other words, we could say that work is first and foremost about worship. It's about worship. It's about worshiping God. So that's Act 1. Act 2. We're all very familiar with this, but it's important to just look at this from the perspective of work. Well, of course, there is a tragedy, like any good story, there is a tragedy that enters in and it throws everything off of kilter. This is Act 2, The Fall. So we don't know specifically how much time had elapsed uh, between the first day Adam got his job, and the day all went wrong. But what's clear is that one way of understanding the fall is that Adam and Eve fell down on the job. That's what they, they were given a job to do, and they fell down. They fell down. They were entrusted with the garden to steward it and to guard it, and on both counts they failed. And I would suggest that Adam himself, as the head failed, even in the place of caring for his wife. 
So Satan shows up, the enemy of God and humans. Instead of protecting the garden and keeping Satan out, pushing him out, they start having a conversation with him, right? They start entertaining his deceptions, his lies. By the end of the conversation, instead of stewarding the garden and getting rid of him, they're turned in on themselves and all the, wor- all of a sudden their work becomes about me, myself, and I. So they're abusing their own authority and ruining it for everyone else. So right away they knew that they'd blown it. The boss, God, shows up to inspect their work and they're hiding in the back office, as it were. <laughs> so maybe, maybe some of you know what it's like to get a subpar performance review, a job review. Have you ever been, re- been re- reviewed like that? Some of us might know what it's like to get fired. But what Adam and Eve got is worse than both of those things. They're kicked out of the garden, but listen to this, they're not relieved of their responsibility. They're kicked out of the garden, but they're not relieved of their responsibility. They're still accountable to God to represent God. They still must work. But the conditions of their work have radically changed. The world where they work is now cursed because of their sin. So Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Three things happen to Adam and Eve's work and to ours because of the fall. First, it becomes toilsome. Work becomes toilsome. Through painful toil you will eat all the days of your life. Now this is so basic to our own experience that of course it's hard for us to imagine work being anything else in some ways, isn't it? After all, even a job you love, right? Even a job that you love has some aspects to it that are tiresome, tedious, toilsome, futile, even painful. In a fallen world, work is toilsome. Second, it's futile. Even though Adam and Eve will painfully toil in the ground, His whole life, the the ground under his feet is cursed. So it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. So futility, fruitlessness. His aspirations, our aspirations, constantly outstrip reality. Try as hard as we can, try as hard as he could, Adam, that will never change. So inside the garden, the result of work was the expansion of paradise. Outside of the garden, our work never produces paradise. It doesn't, not even close. The very ground is cursed. So what we find is that these two aspects of work in a fallen world, that is futility and the toilsomeness of work, they run smack up against the assumptions of the modern world, don't they? So Tim Keller observes this, quote, Our generation insists that work be fulfilling and fruitful, that it fully fit our talents and our dreams, and that to, quote, do something amazing for the world, end quote, as one Google executive described his company's mission. So there's a quote within a quote. 
Keller is quoting a Google executive who says that we are to do something amazing for the world. That, that might sound all nice to us as we sit here because that's the air that we've been breathing. That's what we've been, that's what we've, to put it bluntly, that's what we've had, had shoved down our throats for many decades now. You need to find just the perfect dream job that you're going to be perfectly fulfilled with and you're just going to go do something amazing for the world. Well, of course, that doesn't correspond to reality. So sometimes then we might even be tempted to give up on work entirely, to grow cynical or to opt out. Now, this is the third point about working in a fallen world. That's not an option. That's not an option. The third point about work at the fall is that what had been a free act of worship is now a compulsory act of survival. You have to work in order to survive. You have to work in order to eat. Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. So just consider this then. In the garden, Adam and Eve did not have to work to survive. They did not have to work to survive. It was a perfect paradise. There were already fruit-producing trees. It was there for them to tend. Now Adam and Eve must toil in the ground to survive. So there's an urgency, a compulsion to work. It's not that work has now become bad. It's not that work is a punishment. It's that in a fallen world, toilsome work is toilsome, futile, and relentless. So like it or not, we must work. We cannot escape it until death. But this crisis in the story is not just about the change in our work conditions. It's also about a change in us. That is the workers. In a fallen world, fallen workers no longer work as an act of worship to God. So it gets worse. Worship, sorry, work becomes idolatry very often. Instead, so one of the pictures of work we're given outside of the garden is the contrast between the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth, the son of Adam who replaced Abel after Cain was killed. Or sorry, after, after Cain killed Abel. What we see is that work builds culture. So Cain's descendants develop agriculture and music and metallurgy. You can see this in Genesis 4. All of that is really good, but what their narrative also tells us is that, that the, this, the descendants of Cain are defined by their work. Their identity comes from their work. In contrast, the descendants of Seth, the godly line, aren't associated with their work at all. So Genesis 4.26 says this, that the line of Seth, they were defined by this. They began to call on the name of the Lord. So the point isn't that worshipers of God don't work, but rather they aren't defined by their work. And again, I would argue that we're all very tempted to do this. We all do this on some level. So this idolatry of work comes into sharp focus in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. 
You can read about it, Genesis 11. I'm going to read Genesis 11, 1 to 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make up bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, and let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So you can see then this is an example of work becoming idolatrous and workers finding their identity and, and, and striving to, be glor- to, to bring glory to themselves rather than glorify God. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Then notice too, at the end of verse 4, they said, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So rather than following the creation mandate of spreading, f- spreading um, s- the, the um, circumstances for human flourishing in God's world and expanding that out, they wanted to make a name for themselves and just hang out right here. It's, it's the exact opposite of the creation mandate, what you see in Genesis 11. So how far from the garden we've come then at this point? What begins as a means of saying, look at God in worship has then become a means of saying, look at me, right? Look at my work. Look at how great I am. Look at how great we are. Rather than look at how great God is. So the image bearers then have become curved in on themselves. Now the tragic result is we're so self-absorbed and self-centered, we make absolutely everything about us, me, myself, and I. Or maybe even on a collective level, on a societal level, about us, plural. But not about imaging forth God and his goodness not for his glory. So as Augustine put it, um, we seek to reflect our own glory to ourselves rather than God's glory back to him. So this idolatry then has two different aspects that we can see. And these are very often, again, expressed in culture. So on the one hand, some of us are tempted to define our, ourselves directly by our work, by our accomplishments, by our success. Look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've done. On the other hand, some of us could be tempted to define ourselves by our freedom from work. That is our leisure, our hobbies, our recreation, our retirement. Michael Lawrence, a former pastor at uh, uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church at Washington, D.C., he wrote this course. So he used to pastor in D.C., and he observed that young people came to D.C. to change the world. He pictured D.C., the epicenter of American politics. Young people came to D.C. to change the world. So their idolatry of work then was wrapped up in their identity. They, they could perceive themselves to be the saviors of the world. As you look around, some of these 
uh, gurus, they think that they are the saviors of the world. So Michael Lawrence, he now lives in Portland, and he just notes the strong contrast between D the young folks in D.C. and Portland. In Portland, young people go there to escape work. They go there to escape work. So it's the epicenter then of, um, in America, we could say, of work avoidance. And it's the idolatry of freedom and leisure that one finds their identity in. So you can see then, these are just two sides of the same coin. An idolatry that defines our identity by our, our relationship to work rather than to God. You can see that there. It's either avoidance or uh, look at me, I'm going to change the world, right? Well, the end of the Babel story <coughs> is that God comes down and judges the folks at Babel and their idolatrous worship of work. And that same judgment is what we all deserve. Because naturally, again, in and of ourselves, outside of God's grace, we are seeking to make a name for ourselves. But praise God, that's not where the story of work ends. So the lesson for Act 2 then, again in your bulletin there, lesson for Act 2, the problem with our work is that we've lost the connection between God, work, and worship. Sometimes it's that we debase work, and we don't see it as worship of God. Sometimes it's that we, we, idol, we, we idolize work and worship it, and ultimately ourselves, instead of seeing it as an act of worship of the one true God. So we've lost work as worship of God. That's where Act 2 ends. Well, you can see we move on, Act 3, redemption. Redemption. God became man. We were just uh, celebrating this at Christmas time. Jesus was born of, a virgin, uh, of the Virgin Mary. Flesh and blood. The God-man. So his earthly adopted father, Joseph, was a carpenter. Jesus, presumably, would have learned carpentry as well. That would have been his occupation until the day he took up his ministry. And this is the work. He makes it very clear. This is the work for which he came. So when his cousin John the Baptist saw him, he declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29. This was Christ's true work. To be the Redeemer. To pay the penalty for sin on the cross so that sins could be forgiven. And to rise from the dead so that all who repent and believe will be redeemed from the curse. So John 17, Jesus says, I've brought you glory on earth, speaking to the Father, by completing the work you gave me to do. And of course, John 19:30, Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. It is finished. So here's, here's a bit of a thought, and I'm expecting maybe, I don't know if there would be questions about this after. It's popular these days to talk about redeeming culture, redeeming work and the workplace. And that is an understandable notion because redemption is what Christ came to do. And redemption does change everything. I mean, we're looking at this, this sort of fourfold act of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. 
However, at this point in the story, we're going to misunderstand the story of work uh, if we don't understand that while people are redeemed, work is not. While people are redeemed, work is not. What that means, and it's for Christian and non-Christian alike, work remains toilsome. All the different things I went through, we just went through in the, in the fall, it remains toilsome. There's still a futility about it. Ultimately, whatever you're doing is going to fall apart. It's not going to last forever, right? I mean, as a plumber, I can attest to that. You know, 10 years later, my stuff is leaking, and then I have to make, I'm, I'm dealing with an insurance claim right now, which is annoying. It's not perfect plumbing. <laughs> so what's the difference then what is our redemption then? How, how does our being redeemed, if you're a believer here today, how does your being redeemed change your work then? If you're redeemed but your work is not, if there's a distinction there. Well, it doesn't change the play, but it does change us, the actors in the play. And that change is crucial. So first, redeemed people repent of their idolatrous attitudes of work, those things that we just went over, because their identity is no longer in work. So listen to Paul in Colossians 3. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the gospel changes what our hearts are set on. Because our identity and security are now in Christ, not in what we do. So later in the same chapter, Paul makes a very practical application. Um, this is Colossians 3.22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work it out with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving, ultimately. So the gospel doesn't change the conditions of your work then. It changes the condition of your heart, which leads to a second development. Because Christians have repented, Redeemed people, once again, worship God through their work. That was the original intention. So Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul himself actually goes back to Genesis to describe the change in the redeemed worker. Ephesians 2 verse 10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's lesson three then on your handout. People are redeemed, work is not, but because we are redeemed, work is no longer about our name, about our glory. It's about God's name and his glory. So because we are redeemed and are recreated anew as God's 
work product, our work, again, still at this stage, with all of its compulsory, toilsome pain and futility, can once again be offered freely as worship. Because that work itself is God's work product. So what God is doing then is he's showing, there is a sense in which he is showing you off to the watching world, even as you can once again, as a redeemed person, reflect his glory back to him. Even in the midst of the futility and frustration that it still attends work. (coughs) So as we saw from Ephesians 2, God has actually um, created us in Christ Jesus for those good works. So he worked this, he planned this in advance. Our work is important mainly because it shows off God's work in us. That's the mean. That means that there's one more act in this story. So that's act three. Act four, restoration. Restoration. Now this comes back uh, sort of to sort of that tricky concept to wrap our minds around in some ways. Um, there's, a, there's a lot there to think about, but our, our, as workers, as believers, we are redeemed, but our work is not. How does restoration play into all of this? Act four, restoration. Well, Romans 8 here is very helpful for us. Paul here speaks not of the redemption of work and culture, but we could say of the liberation and restoration of creation. Paul speaks of the liberation and restoration of all of creation. And of course, we would have to say that work and culture is a part of God's creation. So he's talking about the new creation here. That is when Jesus comes back. So Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Well, Paul very much had Genesis 3 in mind here. Paul is doing biblical theology in Romans 8. So creation has been subjected to frustration, futility, the bondage of decay. With Christ breaking into this fallen world and redeeming a people for himself, those realities have not changed about creation yet. If you think they have, again, the story you're telling yourself does not correspond to reality. I mean, I just have to say, just look around, right? That's not the world we live in at this point. But the day will come when the conditions of the work, uh, of our work, will change once more. So consider this then no longer toilsome, no longer futile, no longer compulsory, that is, in order to survive, hand to mouth. Instead, glorious freedom, even in your work. So, brothers and sisters, the end of the story of work is that God is making all things new, even work, even culture. A world without curse, a world where thorns no longer infest the ground and painful toil is no more. Freedom, not compulsion, glory, 
not death. And when that happens, of course, work won't disappear. Work will not disappear. Why would it? It preceded the fall. It will outlast the fall. We were created to work. We were created to work. So you'll be restored to its proper context. And that context is the seventh day Sabbath rest of God. That's, that's the sort of the foreshadowing that we see. So Hebrews 4, in Hebrews 4 we read that for the people of God, we have a Sabbath rest waiting for us. And that our rest was foreshadowed by the Sabbath day of rest and the promised land. So think Old Covenant, a land of rest. So what does that rest look like then? This, this is the sort of the, the, the um, typological picture of the new heavens and the new earth that we see even in Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 12. And when the Lord your God brings you into that land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the picture that you see of redemption and even restoration in the Old Testament. It's a foreshadowing of the things to come. But again, for our purposes, we can see that th- this picture of being brought into the promised land is not a, 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 it's not, um, a life without work that God intended for his, his people. It's a picture of freedom. It's a picture of abundance to work as unto the Lord for his glory, work that's satisfying and fruitful. That's what work is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, of which, again, Deuteronomy 6 is just a dim picture. So it's a glorious freedom in the perfect rest of God to once again use our gifts, our talents, our creative um, skills, our, our energy to tend the garden, to grow the city, and to know the satisfaction of work well done. So Isaiah 65 again gives us a picture of this. It's sort of a further picture beyond Deuteronomy 6. Isaiah 65, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Just think again of the parallels between Deuteronomy 6. No longer will they build houses and others live in them. Think exile or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be blessed by the Lord. That's in Isaiah 65. And of course, as we sort of zoom ahead now to Revelation, this is ultimately fulfilled in Revelation 21 as the nations bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem. So the new Jerusalem is a temple city. It's a garden city. The city of God where he dwells with his people once again. And this is the end of the story of work. An end then that of course is really a new beginning. It's a new beginning at that point. For all eternity, consider this, 
for all eternity, our work, our creativity, our industry, our labor will bring forth splendor. But that splendor will not be spent on ourselves. It will not be used to magnify our name. It will be used to magnify God to his glory. Well, brothers and sisters, if we don't understand the story of work, then our work will be in vain. We'll assume that work is, is an end in and of itself. We'll assume that it's an evil to be minimized or a God to be worshipped. And maybe most of us are somewhere in between those two options, maybe back and forth, I don't know. So when we understand the story of work, we understand that the end of work is God. It's worship of God. That will change our work now and will energize our work forever. So this is the end of this lesson. We're going to be sent, sort of diving into this for the next 12 weeks now. Um, I've got a few minutes if, if folks have questions, and then I'll pray, and then we can adjourn. So any, any folks have questions? Uh, Josh? of environment, retirement. Right. Right. Yep. <laughs> and collected seashells. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Freedom 55, Freedom 55 is again the, it's sort of the, 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 uh, the picture that, that has been cast for us, right? In our, that's, that's what we ought to be working towards. But I think if you understand sort of this, this biblical theological paradigm that we've just gone over, the motivation for work is the glory of God. So as God is sanctifying us, as we're redeemed sinners, we're being sanctified increasingly as we grow older. Our desires ought to, pe ought to be to still use our time, our talents, our treasures, and so on to honor and glorify God. Now that's not to say that a person, um, you know, as they grow older, it needs to continue plugging away at the nine to five. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with working towards a retirement in that sense. Um, but obviously, we want to use, again, our time, our talents, our treasures for God's glory. And I would suggest, I mean, not, not just suggest, the Bible paints a very clear picture for older folks, even pouring into younger folks. I mean, when, when, when I see older men, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, man, those are prime years for those older men to be pouring into younger men. 
So it's not necessarily, you know, punching in, punching out, making money. But again, you're using your time, your energy, your resources for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God. And obviously that goes for older women as well. That's the paradigm that is given um, for people. So, yeah, I mean, I would say on the one hand, it's not necessarily wrong or sinful uh, to invest, to work towards um, a retirement in that sense. But the goal still ought to be you're using your time, your energy, your resources, I mean, to pour into the church for the expansion of the kingdom, for the glory of God. And you do that till, till the day you drop, right? You don't, yeah, you don't go just go hang out on a beach and collect seashells. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we, we, we very often, you know, for me, I'm a plumber. You know, I've been studying. I want to, Lord, want to get into pastoral ministry. We very much identify ourselves as what we do, right? I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that either. But I, I, I would say again, in, in, the, in the course of conversation, what is it that you most um, talk about, right? People, people, people will know what we love most, what we care most about by what we spend our time and energy and even our, our talk on. So, I mean, eventually then, you know, folks around you that you're working with or even, you know, you meet someone at, at a get-together or whatever, you know, I, I would say just pray for opportunity to speak about your identity in Christ. You know, I'm, I'm not you know, whatever you do. I, I'm not a plumber and I've done this and this and this. Well, I'm, I'm a forgiven sinner and this is the work that God is doing in my life. So try to, try to emphasize that. Alan? Right. There is. Yeah, so what's the common grace purpose to work? Well, we, when we consider common grace, so God's um, sort of overarching goodness and grace upon all of mankind, right? God causes, causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Um, how does that play into the story of work? Well, I would say um, considering common grace upon any given society is just a beautifully comforting thing because it, it recognizes on the one hand that we are depraved, <laughs> right? Romans 8, um, outside of Christ, no one can please God. That's what Romans 8 is very clear about, right? But on the other hand, because God is sovereign overall in his providence, he can ordain that fallen rebellious sinners are still contributing in some sense for the good of society and human flourishing, right? Um, so, I mean, again, uh, you know, b being a plumber, is my, is there such a thing as Christian plumbing? Well, it depends what you mean by that. Is my plumbing going to be any better than a non-Christian -Christ plumber's plumbing? Well, hopefully, because I want to be, I, I want to be working well, 
but the actual functioning of that plumbing, um, you know, it's it's probably actually going to be pretty similar, <laughs> right? Um, but that is a common grace, right? You can hire a non-Christian plumbing contractor and enjoy the common grace of having modern plumbing so that you don't have to go out to the outhouse in the back. And that is go God's common grace upon a society in that sense. So I think basically on the one side, common grace recognizes that we're fallen and depraved. Um, there is nothing that an unbeliever can do that is actually pleasing to God. Romans 8. That's a, that's a massive indictment against fallen humanity. On the other hand, God will still use the works of that, purple, uh, that person or those people for the good even of this fallen world. Um, yeah, maybe one more question and I'll close in prayer here. Yep. Yeah. So expound upon our work, bringing on honor, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> honor and glory to God in the new heavens and new earth. Yeah, I mean, I think primarily because um, all of our motivation, what drives us, will be pure. The, the, the problem for us now this is maybe something I didn't get into so much in this lesson, but the problem for us now is even as redeemed sinners, all of us still to vi various extents have mixed motivations, right? So on the one hand, as redeemed sinners, we want to honor and glorify God with our work. On the other hand, there still is that tension of, well, yeah, but look at me. Look at what I've done. You know, look how, look how great I am. And the beauty of, of working in the new heavens and the new earth is all honor, all glory, all, mot all motivation will be for God. It'll be for him. Um, so I think, like, looking at the paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, even the restoration of our hearts, right? Our, our hearts and our minds have been redeemed, but not fully and completely restored. And that's the day that we're waiting for, and our work will, will be free from sin in the new heavens and the new earth. Is that helpful? Yeah. Well, let's close, guys, and we can um, visit before the main service. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in the dark even for what work is about. God, we praise you that you are sovereign over all these things, that you are in the, the work of redeeming and restoring this fallen and cursed creation. Father, we long for that day. We long for the day for, for Christ to return and make all things new. But in the meantime, Father, I pray that you'd help us to work as unto you for your glory. Give us pure motives. Forgive us uh, when we fail. Help us to look to Christ with the eyes of faith, uh, even for the joy that is, has been set before us, as it were, of the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, to work as unto you, even with all the toil and futility and frustration that still attends work now. So help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.